Lord, and I pray that you would do for us what you did for the blind man, that you would open our eyes, that we would see Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Well, the world according to Jesus is divided into just two groups. The first group is those that are blind, and they are in darkness and cannot see spiritual truth. And the second group is those who have sight and can see spiritual reality. There's no middle ground. Either you see or you're totally blind. And this issue is beautifully illustrated when one of Jesus' greatest miracles takes place. He heals a man who's been blind since birth. And as chapter 9 begins, Jesus has hidden himself from the Pharisees who are trying to kill him. But as he's escaping, he stops to heal a blind man. And God's grace dominates this whole miracle. This isn't a man who runs to Jesus saying, heal me, heal me. He had no capacity to see Jesus. He was blind. He didn't know Jesus. He had no idea who Jesus was. But Jesus stopped and healed him. And this man is a perfect picture of all of us before we come to Christ and he opens our eyes. Well, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Well, the blind man couldn't see the disciples or Jesus, but he certainly heard their comment. And the disciples see the suffering of this man and they begin philosophizing about him as if he can't hear them. And they clearly believe that sin and suffering are closely connected, but they erroneously assume that all affliction, pain, or suffering is divine punishment for sin. Now, certainly the Bible teaches that there are times that God does discipline his people by affliction, but Jesus says that this is not one of those situations. It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And this means that God had allowed the man to be born blind so that this particular moment in his earthly life, Jesus might come upon him and cure him, and that as a result, God would receive glory. And here is one lesson from this story. There are no pat answers to the question of human suffering. There are no pat answers. And instead of theorizing, Jesus tells them it's time to get to work and to do something to alleviate this man's suffering. Time is short, and Jesus is determined to do the work the Father had sent him to do. So he then spits on the ground, makes some clay, and applies it to the eyes of the blind man. And he tells him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. The man doesn't ask questions. He doesn't stop to reason. He finds his way to the pool where he washes off the clay. And can you just imagine his joy and surprise when he can see for the first time in his life? We don't know if he hurried back to the gate, eager to find Jesus, or if he walked slowly, taking in all the sights he'd never seen before. But somehow he goes home and he tells his parents and neighbors what's happened to him. Well, his neighbors and those who had seen him beg were astounded. Isn't this the man who sat and begged? But some found it easier to believe that the blind man had just somehow disappeared and somebody else who bore a remarkable resemblance to him took his place. They could not imagine he had been healed. No, it cannot be him. It, it cannot be. It's just someone who looks like him. Well, finally, the man speaks up. Hey, guys, I'm the man. It's me. And finally convinced of his identity, they pepper him with questions. Well, what happened? How were your eyes open? And the man calmly relates what had happened to him. And he refers to the man who gave him sight as the man called Jesus. But he has no idea who Jesus is or where 
he, what, where he is or what he looks like. Well, perhaps thinking that the religious leaders could help them understand this miracle of God, the man's neighbors and acquaintances decide to take him to the Pharisees. Now, these same Pharisees would have walked past this man countless times when he was begging at the gate and completely ignored him, concluding he had committed some sin that brought about his blindness. And so when they hear that Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath, instead of rejoicing, they are outraged. And their questioning begins. How did you receive your sight? Uh, well, he put clay on my eyes. I washed and I see. Um, instead of praising God for his mercy and healing this man, they quibble over their own technicalities and they accuse Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. And since Jesus disregarded their made-up Sabbath rules, most of the leaders erroneously concluded that he was a sinner and therefore could not have been sent from God. But this opinion that Jesus was not sent from God was by no means unanimous among the Pharisees. And um, they, some of them just raised this question, how can a man who is a sinner do this miracle? And this little subgroup realizes that only the power of God could explain what's happened. Well, this division of opinion creates confusion among the Pharisees. So their interrogation resumes. Well, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And the man says, well, he's a prophet. Well, this is a decided leap forward in his thinking, and it is not what the Pharisees want to hear. And at some point, they realize the whole case hinges on whether or not this man was actually blind from birth. So they summon his parents to interrogate them. And if the Jewish leaders could succeed in getting the parents to deny that their son had been born blind, the miracle would be discredited, and Jesus could be demonstrated to be a fraud. Is this your son that you say was born blind? How does he now see? They answered, well, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. Well, this is the most pathetic response imaginable. And it's a big fat lie to boot. And they know exactly how it happened, but they are so overcome by fear of the Jews that these parents cannot rejoice in the miracle that happened to their son they don't want to be put out of the synagogue, and they do not want to get involved. But you know what? Maybe this happened to you when you became a believer. God opened your eyes to the truth, and you were gloriously saved. But your family did not accept the work of God in your life. And not only did they not accept it, they may have even been hostile towards your newfound faith. And you just need to know you're in good company. The plan to extract damaging information from the parents was unsuccessful, so the Pharisees decide to interrogate the man again, hoping he will deny the miracle or change his testimony. And they say to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now, they are not saying, praise God for what he's done in your life. They're not saying, praise God, not Jesus. They are essentially saying, before God, own up and tell the whole truth. Well, the truth that they want confessed, of course, is that Jesus is a sinner and a transgressor of the law. Their minds are made up, and the facts have no bearing on their illogical conclusion, none whatsoever. Well, the healed man professes no competence to judge whether or not Jesus is a sinner. At this point, he's content to leave that question to the theological experts. But there is one thing he does know. Though I was blind, now I see. 
He couldn't tell his interrogators much about Jesus, but the one thing he did know was that Jesus had healed him and no one was going to tell him otherwise. So the religious authorities are stuck. This is not turning out like they had planned. So the interrogation resumes with the same questions. And the man becomes honestly indignant. I told you and you didn't listen. Do you want to become his disciples too? Well, that sarcasm, I, brilliant. That sarcasm was the tipping point. And the Pharisees turn to the last resort of the unconverted. They revile him and they comfort themselves with their spiritual superiority. We are disciples of Moses. Well, the healed man certainly doesn't grasp everything, but he does display common sense. And what he finds remarkable is not his own belief, but the unbelief of the officials. Jesus has performed an astonishing miracle, and they don't know where he comes from. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Well, the Pharisees are so outraged by what they perceive as the impertinence of an untrained, uneducated man that they threw him out. Because of his healing and his testimony about Jesus, this man was rejected first by his family and friends, then by his church and nation. Psalm 27.10, If my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me up. The Jews cast him out of the temple, but the Lord of the temple found him. Jesus heard that they'd put him out, and he went to find him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? The blind man had never seen Jesus before, but I am certain he recognized his voice instantly. He knew that the man speaking to him was Jesus. He knew that. And Jesus asked this question to bring the man to saving faith. His understanding of who Jesus is has progressed. Initially, he says Jesus is a great man. And then he decides that since Jesus gave him sight, he's a prophet. Then he grows in conviction and says that Jesus was a man from God and that God actually heard him. But that's not enough for saving faith. The man is eager to believe, but he doesn't know who the Son of God is. And he asks, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You've both seen him, and he is the one talking to you. Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. The very first time that this man physically sees Jesus, he sees him as the Son of God. Jesus brings him to the place where he is able to fall down and worship him. How do you know when spiritual sight comes to someone? He becomes a worshiper of Jesus. James Montgomery Boyce describes those who come to Jesus. First of all, they admit their need. They cannot see, but like the blind man, they know they cannot see. They know that their case is hopeless unless the God of miracles should help them. Second, they've met Jesus and have found his teachings both comfortable and reasonable. There may be much they don't understand, but what they do understand makes sense. Therefore, they want to learn more. Third, they've obeyed Jesus, he's anointed their eyes, and they have gone to the source of living water, the word of God, with which they have washed the clay away, and then they've returned seeing. Finally, they have found themselves growing in the knowledge of Jesus and have found themselves worshiping at his feet. None of this has been due to themselves or their spiritual ability. They have none, but solely to the grace of God, which sought them out and healed them unasked. Such are God's children, such are those who believe and whose guilt is washed away by Christ's blood. 
you know, once you've been found, once your eyes have been opened, you can't help but worship. Well, in contrast to the worship of the formerly blind man, Jesus then points out the hostile, stubborn hatred of the Pharisees. For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. And what's happened to the healed man, the miracle that opened his eyes and enabled him to see, and the ensuing debate with the religious authorities constituted a real-life parable a parable about sight and blindness in the spiritual realm. The Pharisees sarcastically asked, we're not blind too, are we? And Jesus responded, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. If the Pharisees actually were blind, they would have an excuse. They knew the scriptures and had enough knowledge to recognize that Jesus was the son of God. But they were offended by Jesus. They were blind to their own sin and unaware of their spiritual bankruptcy. And consequently, they are guilty before God. They are blind guides leading the blind. By contrast, Jesus is the good shepherd. And in chapter 10, which is, takes place at the same time, we haven't had a change of scene or time, he begins a lengthy discourse focusing on himself as the shepherd and on his care for the sheep as their savior. Now, the loving care of a shepherd was a familiar metaphor to first century listeners who understood that this described the attitude of God toward Israel. God calls himself the shepherd of Israel and says that Israel's his flock. Psalm 95, uh, 7 says, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And David fully described this relationship in Psalm 23, which begins, the Lord is my shepherd. Jesus compares himself to Israel's false shepherds by using two images. First, he says he's the true shepherd of the sheep, and then he says that he is the only door to the sheepfold. Now, we're 21st century city dwellers, so some explanation may be helpful. There were two types of sheep pens that Jesus refers to in this passage, and the first one is what he talks about in verses 1 through 5. In each village, there was a large sheep, uh, sheepfold, which was the common property of all the local sheep farmers. And it was protected by a wall that was about 10 feet high. And when night fell, a number of different shepherds would lead their flocks through the door of the fold. These shepherds would go home, eat, rest, sleep, and a doorkeeper took over the protection of the sheep. And this man was on guard all through the night, ready to protect the sheep against thieves or wild animals that might attempt to climb the walls. And in the morning, the shepherds would return, entering through the door. The shepherd would call the sheep that belonged to his flock. They'd respond to his voice and follow him, and he would lead them out to pasture. Mark my words, I'm telling you the truth. He who, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he puts forth all of his own sheep, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. So now that we understand the cultural context, it becomes easier to understand that the thieves and robbers are clearly the false shepherds of Israel. They're the Pharisees, and the sheepfold itself is Judaism. And the ones who hear Christ's voice and respond to his call 
um, are those of his own who are within Israel. So the man born blind is a perfect example of a sheep who heard the Savior's voice. And while it seems like the Pharisees, the Pharisees casting out of the blind beggar was in reality the good shepherd leading him out from the barren wilderness of apostate Judaism to the green pastures of faith in the one true God. Jesus communicates some wonderful truth here. First of all, he calls his sheep and he does so by name. Out of all the billions of people who have ever lived through all of human history, the God of the universe calls his sheep by name. And to each of Christ's sheep comes a particular, a special call to salvation. He calls you knowing all your failures and sin. This is the doctrine of election. This call is inward. It's irresistible. You heard his voice. God gave you ears to hear and the faith to believe. And you followed him. Not everyone is saved. Jesus did not call the Pharisees. And those who are not his sheep are not able to understand spiritual truth even when it is plainly presented to them. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what he'd been saying to them. Well, Jesus then continues his comments and makes reference to the second kind of sheep pen that was common in Israel. And this type of pen was out in the countryside where the shepherds would keep their flocks in good weather. And it was nothing more than a, a rough circle of stones piled up that made a protective wall with a small open space through which the shepherd would bring the sheep at nightfall. There was no door to close, and the shepherd would lie across the opening, and he would sleep there, literally becoming the door. And this is what Jesus refers to in verse 7. I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. First, Jesus said he was the shepherd to whom the doorkeeper opens the door. And here he says, I'm not only the shepherd who leads the sheep in and out of the sheepfold, I'm the door. His meaning is clear. It is only through Jesus that salvation is found. And this parallels John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, two times in the next several verses, Jesus identifies himself by saying, I am the good shepherd. And literally translated, Jesus says, I am the shepherd, the good one. And the Greek word for good encompasses both the concept of moral goodness and ascetic beauty. So Jesus' meaning is clear. He's saying, I am the shepherd. I am the excellent superlative one. He is stating that he is greater than all the other shepherds. Well, who would his Jewish listeners have considered the greatest shepherd? Who was the greatest shepherd in Israel's history? David. He was the shepherd who became their greatest king. And not only is Jesus claiming to be greater than David, he's claiming to be deity. And when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, those listening would immediately think of Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd. The Jews knew that the true excellent shepherd was God. And when Jesus says, I am the excellent preeminently perfect shepherd, he was claiming equality with God. He made himself equal with Yahweh of the Old Testament, and he could make that claim because it was true. Well, having stated his identity, Jesus then says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, this is interesting because a normal shepherd would be willing to lay down his life for the sheep, 
but it would never be his intention to die because then he couldn't take care of the sheep anymore or help save them. He, they'd be left at the mercy of predators. So Jesus, as the good shepherd, doesn't merely risk his life. He lays it down in accordance with the Father's will. And far from being accidental, Jesus' death is precisely what qualifies him to be the good shepherd. By his death, instead of exposing the flock to further ravages, he draws them to himself. And the picture that John very clearly paints is that the sheep are in mortal danger, and in their defense, the shepherd loses his life, and it is by his death that they're saved. Next, he says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And the intimacy between the sheep and the shepherd is grounded upon the intimacy between the Father and the Son. It parallels it. And this, represent, this relationship represents a knowledge and affection so profound, so spiritual, so heavenly, and so blessed that no other analogy properly describes it. Just as the Father knows Jesus, just as Jesus knows the Father, that is how he knows us, and we who are his sheep know him. Jesus then mentions that he has other sheep who are not of this fold, meaning that they weren't members of the house of Israel. And he's telling them that the gospel is going to go far beyond the borders of Israel to the world of the Gentiles. And he was prophesying that one day there would be one sheepfold of Jews and Gentiles, and the relationship that his Jewish sheep have with the shepherd is going to be the same relationship that the Gentiles will have. Now, words that are encouraging and assuring to us today would have been absolutely infuriating and insulting to the Pharisees who believed that they alone had access to the kingdom of God. Well, in verses 17 and 18, Jesus then gives us a, an inside glimpse into the relationship between the Father and the Son. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so I may take it again. No one's taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this commandment I receive from my Father. The two attitudes that define the relationship of the incarnate Christ to the Father are love and obedience. The two are inseparably linked, since it's impossible to love God without obeying him. The Father loves the Son because he laid down his life for the sheep, the son demonstrated his love to the father by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There is no such thing as love without obedience. And your love for God, ladies, is measured by your obedience to him. John then tells us that a division occurred again among the Pharisees. And some attribute the miracles of Jesus to a demon as they had in chapter 8. Well, how utterly vile and wicked are the hearts of men to call the Son of God a demoniac. And it's humbling to remember that the same corrupt heart dwells in each of us. And we would all be just as blind as these men if Jesus had not touched our hearts and opened our eyes to the truth. Not all of the Jews are convinced that Jesus is evil because they realize a demon can't open the eyes of a blind man. And so men like Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would have been members of this group. And then they recognize the truth that Jesus was teaching. <clears throat> As we come to verse 22, now we have a new setting in chapter 10. And again, the Lord is talking to the Jews. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. 
Um, I think the King James Version conveys it very well here. It says, how long will you make us to doubt? How long will you make us to doubt? Well, how hypocritical can they be? They've already tried to kill Jesus three times, and now they're seeking to blame him for their unbelief. They are saying that their failure to believe was Jesus' fault, in spite of the fact he'd been clear in his teachings and had been doing miracles among them for three years. Why don't they believe? Jesus tells them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. Jesus' works, blew works bore conclusive witness to his messianic credentials, but they didn't believe. Why? Because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And Jesus says that the elect, those chosen for salvation, hear his voice because a sovereign God imparts to them the capacity to hear and believe. I love this part. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Let there be no doubt about it. Eternal life is a gift bestowed by Jesus. It's not earned as a wage, merited as a prize, or won as a crown. It is eternal. So by definition, it is not temporary. It is not revocable. It cannot be lost. And Jesus reiterates that those who have eternal life will never perish. True salvation cannot be lost. But this does not mean that there will not be dangers. If Jesus promises that no one will succeed in plucking us from his hands, it must be because he knows that there will be some who will try. Jesus first tells us no one can snatch them out of my hand, and then he reiterates that no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Jesus is claiming the same power as God, the Father, to protect the sheep. Who is greater than God? Who is more powerful than God? No one. Believers, get this picture, we are safely nestled between the loving hands of God the Father and the nail-scarred hands of the Lord Jesus forever. We're right there. I and the Father are one. And while liberal theologians may try to interpret this verse to say that Jesus was claiming to merely be one in purpose with God, the Jews who were present had no question whatsoever about the meaning of his words. They picked up stones again to stone him. They instantly recognized that Jesus had claimed absolute equality with the Father, and to their ears this was blasphemy. They explode in self-righteous anger, and they're ready to kill him. Jesus had just answered their question. Remember, they had just said, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, he very plainly says, I am, and they didn't like the answer. He answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? You know, this was a remarkable scene. Faced with angry, murderous men, Jesus doesn't flinch. I've spent all my life doing good works. I've given sight to the blind. I've fed the hungry. I've healed the lame. Which of these things makes you so angry that you want to kill me? What kind of religion objects to the healing of paralytics and men born blind? For a good work, we don't stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. The Jews cannot see their way to thinking through the implications of Jesus' works. They could always explain them away. The immovable point of offense lies with what Jesus says. 
from their perspective, he has spoken blasphemy. Jesus, a mere mortal, claims to be God, lining himself up on the other side of the unbridgeable chasm that separates the transcendent, infinite creator from his finite and fallen creatures. For the reader, the irony is palpable. Jesus has not made himself God. He is God. He is himself the eternal word, the word that was with God and was God. He is the unique son who obediently and humbly accepted the incarnation. Jesus then confronts his accusers by using scripture. And this, I found this little section a bit confusing when he quotes Psalm 82. And he's just basically um, using scripture to argue that those words were legitimately used to refer to, to others that had served God. Um, and then he goes on, if I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. And Jesus appeals to the evidence he wants his opponents to weigh. He doesn't expect to be believed solely on the basis of his claims. However, the miracles that he has performed are works that are nothing but a divine power could accomplish. These works of Jesus are the voice of God. And by refusing to believe not only Jesus' words, but also his works, these unbelieving Jews contradicts God, contradict God's own testimony, and they call God a liar. Well, being confronted with their own ignorance of the scriptures and the brilliance of Jesus' reasoning was more than they could handle. They again sought to seize Jesus, but he eluded their grasp. It didn't matter what he said or what appeals he made or how merciful he was. Their hearts were hard as stone, and they would scream for his blood until they saw him nailed to a Roman cross. Escaping the venom of Jerusalem, Jesus went beyond the Jordan to the area where John the Baptist had begun his ministry. And John tells us many believed in him there. You know, I'm really glad that verse is there. It's encouraging to know that even when the nation as a whole rejected Jesus, hated him, and wanted to kill him, God still had a little flock of sheep out there across the Jordan, and Jesus went to find them. You know, John's words at the beginning of this gospel have proven true again and again. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So the question is, have you received him? Have you heard the voice of the shepherd calling you to himself? If you hear his voice, repent and come to him. If you know the shepherd, that means your eyes have been opened to spiritual truth. And growth in the Christian life is the process of learning to see, discern, and obey God's word. We all have blind spots in our lives where we don't see our sin clearly. We all have struggles where we see our sin and we still refuse to obey. Ask God to give you sight to see what he sees, and the grace to confess and obey. He is a good shepherd. He loves you very much. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to open our eyes. We pray for the, the grace to believe and obey. In Jesus' name, amen.